0: You're listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast with your host, Andy Plymer.
1: For someone to explain.
0: Bringing you up to date coaching concepts from the world of rugby. Sharing ideas to make the game better.
2: Welcome to episode number seven of the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast. With me today is Keir Wenham-Flatt. Uh, he's a strength and conditioning coach uh, for Argentina Rugby, and he's currently in England with the team at the Rugby World Cup. Uh, he started his strength and conditioning career with London Wasps as the academy S&C coach from 2010 to 2013. Uh, he spent six months after that as head S&C coach with the Rotherham Titans before taking on the Argentina role in 2013 as well as spending a period of time with the Sydney Roosters Rugby League Club as head strength coach, a speed and power coach uh, for 2013 and 14. He's also the owner-operator of the Rugby Strength uh, of RugbyStrengthCoach.com and it's great to have him on the show, so welcome Kier.
1: Thank you very much mate, I'm glad you just brushed that uh, six months at Sydney Roosters <laughs> as quickly as possible.
2: <laughs> well maybe we'll get into that in a second, yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. Well, First off, what's your backstory? Um, How did you get into the strength and conditioning field? What kind of rugby exposure did you have growing up and all that kind of stuff?
1: Well, I mean, I was the... the typical unskilled fat kid growing up. So I decided really early on that rugby's I was not, perfect
2: gonna, for you. Then
1: yeah, I was not going to be a football player. Um, so I mean, I actually started the first sport I ever did was taekwondo. I did that from the, the age of six, and I yep. did that for eleven years maybe. Yeah, And then it, I'd always wanted to play rugby, and but there wasn't actually rugby at my school when I was in primary school. So I had to wait until I was twelve that I went to big school, yep. uh, and I started playing rugby then. And I was extremely enthusiastic. I was more enthusiastic <laughs> at it than I was good at it. But I got a little bit of representative exposure um, in the county uh, grade when I was like 14, 15. Yeah. Um, and then it really struck home that not only was I slow, fat, white, and unskilled, I was also an extremely late developer. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: And um, one of the coaches kind of sat me down. I mean, it wouldn't happen. <laughs> these days, they would be a lot more tactful about it. But one of the coaches sat me down. He goes, "Look, they want big, strong, fast players. You're none of those things." So <laughs> I was like, "Fuck right, okay, go to the gym." And I'd, you know, that was when I started to train, probably about 15. And I just, ever since then, training has been a part of my life. And um, to be honest, 15 was the end of my representative career. But it became a, it became apparent that I really, really enjoyed it. I had a Uh, a bit of an aptitude for training and I just always stuck with it. I had a little bit of a wobble around the age of 19, 20 where I thought that uh, it wasn't um, highbrow enough to be a strength and conditioning coach and I thought, you know, maybe I'll do psychology. Yeah, yeah, Uh, But when I tried to do that at university and I was soon miserable, I I decided to quit university the first time and start again and uh, that's what I've been doing since 2005 basically, working towards what I'm doing now. Yeah,
2: amazing. And um, so, yeah, you mentioned you, you bit of a bit of a uh, drop-in with the Sydney Roosters. What, um, what, what, are the, what are the differences there with, with programming and cultural differences uh, in terms of rugby league and rugby union?
1: Um, you know, I, I, I can only speak from my experiences. It's yep. one club in a league of 16. I've had yep. a little bit of um, interaction with the other clubs as well. Um, from a cultural perspective – it's, it's definitely a different experience for the players just because uh, Australia and maybe to an ex- yeah, you know, basically Australia not New Zealand as well. Australia is the only country where rugby league players or even rugby players are the most famous athletes in their country.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, they live in a, a real big fishbowl. Uh, they get paid a lot of money. And, you know, in my experience, some of the issues that start to creep in with soccer here, they are getting a little bit of it within the NRL yeah, um, yeah. in Australia in terms of, you know, behavior, players being placed under a huge amount of scrutiny and, and, and things like that. So that, that was one thing that I dealt with, which I've, I have no problem with that. Um, some of the things that I did have issue with as a coach is that because uh, rugby league is somewhat of an insular world as it is anyway, mm-hmm. and the NRL is an even smaller world within itself because they are the, the, the leaders in the sport, um, I found a little bit more resistance to, to newer ideas or certain different ways of training the athletes Than I found in rugby union. Yeah, right. And um they really do pride themselves on being, you know, they are, you know, this is the toughest sport in the world. And for that reason, you get even more resistance uh to the idea that training doesn't have to hurt and not all training has to be maximal, and sometimes it's actually more intelligent to do less with less intensity and less volume and progress as an athlete than than absolutely go balls to the wall. Yeah. So that was uh some of the little issues that I had, um, but you know, ultimately it was still a valuable experience. I took a lot from it. It's just you know I'm not going to con- continue my career <laughs> there.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like, yeah, that's that's really interesting. It's kind of like a, a bit of a "this is how we've always done it" syndrome.
1: Absolutely, and in fairness to them. I made a mistake of going to a club that won the NRL. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> they won the NRL the year before. Yeah, they're not going to change they, they, much,
2: yeah. Huh?
1: They brought me in and they said, you know, do you want to do this job? And I was like, hell yeah, I want to do the job. And they said, well, obviously, if you get a little bit too far away from, um, from what we did last year, we're going to speak up because we won the premiership and we don't wanna, you don't want to fuck with the formula. Mm. And um, the what I considered to be not too far of a departure from what they did the year before was, was too much for them. Yeah. Uh, and it got to the point where I felt as a coach that I was making um more compromises than I was comfortable with to the extent that I felt I was doing a job that was below my best.
2: Yeah.
1: And you know, I'm I'm not in it to do that. I'm no. I'm in it to to be a better coach and to push myself to get better and it's not about money or security as much as those are nice things. Hmm. And um I I took the decision to resign and um and look for other opportunities.
2: Yeah, and that, that led you to the current work with the Pumas um
1: It led me back. Actually, I was very very lucky. Yeah, because I I mean, originally when I moved to Sydney in 2013, I was at a loose end and I was I was trying to get into the NRL. Mm. Um, But then I'd been in contact with a guy that was actually working the job that I'm doing now, and he had some some family issues that caused him to have to go back to England on very short notice.
2: Yeah.
1: And from my relationship with the company that served the contract of the strength and conditioning, they basically said to me. You know, we need a guy on two days' notice. Do you want to do it? And I was like, yep.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> so I funny. did
1: that. And then, thankfully, when I'd left the Roosters, they were lining up a, a replacement for me to go at the Pumas. But then that replacement actually dropped out. And it, it, it all worked out well for everyone involved. They said, listen, you can come back and, and serve the, the next two years until the end of the World Cup, yeah. um if, if you want and they said if the All Blacks offer you a million bucks, you're not allowed to take the job and I said, Right, let's do it.
2: <laughs> Perfect. And the All Blacks didn't offer you a million bucks. So yeah. Surprisingly, yeah. <laughs> <there>. <laughs> cool. So what have, what have been some of the, the the experiences and challenges working with the Pumas? Like were you're you were based in Sydney and were you flying over there for stints or how how did it work?
1: It's it's one stint, um mm-hmm. in one go. So yeah. I serve a, a five month per year contract at the okay. moment. Um so obviously the 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 bulk of the success of the team is going to be how well they do in the Rugby Championship and the Rugby World Cup. Yeah. So I would be responsible for coming in at the start of the the preparation for the Rugby World Championship and yeah. then working with the team throughout that uh, all the way through. And to be honest, that's really all we can do as a team because a lot of our players have played in, in France or the Southern Hemisphere as well, outside yeah. of Argentina, so it can be difficult just to get those contact hours outside of that time. Uh, and when we tend to have teams in November, um, they're more of uh, a development-style team because obviously clubs want their players back to play in the league games. So yeah. it's, it's not been uh, really difficult in terms of working with the players in that five-month stint. What it is difficult to do is to develop stuff on the ground with the coaches to try and improve the system Um outside of those 5 months so that when the guys do arrive we're we're ready to roll and, and hit the ground running. Yeah, so um, you're
2: upskilling like local coaches and and things like that.
1: Which is which is another aspect of what I what I do I was going to say. So, you know, I'm not just responsible for trying to you know if i wrote it down a postcard is win the world cup or win the rugby world uh, the the rugby championship mm. my job also is to try and help them develop a national structure yes. of coaches which is going to allow them to win major competitions off their own back rather yeah, than just right. have coaches come in all the time which is a good idea
2: and and how how has that been like there's got to be some very difficult challenges absolutely very
1: you know it's it's not the size of australia and mm. um, but it is a lot bigger than than england as a country yeah and um, so there's a lot of distance in between it uh, the standard of coaching is, is quite low to be honest and that's yeah. because all of the information that gets disseminated is in English yeah, or right. uh, like the, the Russian stuff which I'm a big fan of all of that stuff is not getting translated into Spanish you know Verkashansky stuff gets translated into Italian then into English and then if you try and translate it again into Spanish it just loses all meaning completely no, so absolutely. we've struggled with that and we struggled with the fact that there's five regional performance centres, and mm-hmm. it's like spinning plates. Like you can go in for two weeks and and improve one centre, but by the time you come round again in six to nine months, they might have dropped off a little bit. So it's
2: yeah.
1: it's it's a challenge. Um, but I have to be honest, things are improving, and obviously I'm I always want things to improve faster than they do. But as you can see, you know from an outs- outsider's perspective, as a country, we are improving, and I can tell you from the inside as well that the standard of coaching is improving as well.
2: Yeah, and I, I think like. The, the potential for further improvement's got to be extremely high now that there's going to be Super Rugby involvement, right?
1: Well, I mean the the UAR have been quite public in Argentina about what their goals are, uh, and they said that their goal is to finish within the top four of the world at the 2019 World Cup. Yeah, and that they have um, three major things which they think are going to help them to achieve that. So one is the uh, creation of regional performance centres all over the country. Mm-hmm. Two is inclusion in the rugby championship, and three is the inclusion in Super Rugby. Yeah. So the the final piece of the puzzle is going to come in in uh, January, and I you know honestly believe that I I think now our potential is to finish within the top four in the world now, and I think it's it's uh, a definite possibility they'll do that in 2019. Well,
2: just looking at who's signed, like you got like thirteen or fourteen of the national teams signed for the, the Super. We've actually, team,
1: right? we've actually marked from, from our elite player squad. We've actually got thirty four of, well, of at forty. So yeah,
2: <laughs> they're, they're they're not going to be like a a Melbourne Rebels coming in first year. They they're, they're going to come in with a chance to win it.
1: They they have um, some very good players. You know, Juan Martin Hernandez has signed, Nico well. Sanchez, uh, Juan Manuel Leguizamon, Leo Senatore. Like it's the only the only notable names that have not signed. Uh, off the top of my head, are Juan Martin Fernandez Lobe, Juan yeah. Emof, Marcos Chusesa, and Marcelo Bosch. I mean, all the others have signed.
2: Wow, that's so that's exciting, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's obviously no disrespect to the Melbourne Rebels, but Jesus, there's some, there's some <laughs> high quality players in that in that group.
1: Absolutely, and I think it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna be beneficial on both sides of the equation. It's gonna make them a lot better a Super Rugby team because they've they've played together as a team and they're they're based in Argentina, getting trained by Argentinian coaches. And I think that's only going to have a good effect on the national team as well. And to be honest, I'm not sure if it's official or not, but I would expect them to adopt the same policy that um, mm. that New Zealand and, and England have adopted, and that is if you don't play in Argentina, you don't play for, for Argentina.
2: Yeah. yeah, that'd have to come pretty soon, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and what about um, the ARC team, like the the I suppose Argentina B? You'd be you'd be involved in that as well. Um
1: the The further away you get from Pumas Super Rugby and and those kind of teams, mm-hmm. the harder it is to to have an impact on the coaching structure, and mm-hmm. that's just a question of resources. Because mm-hmm. the the problem that we have is, you know, how the Pumas do as a team, Super Rugby, Rugby Championship, all that stuff, Rugby World Cup. The performances by those teams determine how much money comes into the system. So. You, you have to be selfish in some regards to try and put as much of your resources as possible into those teams to make sure that they perform to their potential Yeah. so that it creates more money down the line so that you can then let it trickle down. So it's it's quite difficult to try and balance those two because you don't want to neglect other teams, but you do want to have an impact or the biggest impact in terms of financial uh, support coming in for the other teams.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, like, just looking at like I'm based in Canada and I look at Argentina, like they've probably got 10 more million people than Canada does. The country's a little bit small but still big as you mentioned. Like, But there's a lot of similarities in, you know, rugby's been there for, for a long time like it has in Canada, over 100 years in some places. Um, you know, you're competing with a higher profile sport, soccer there, ice hockey here. But there's clear differences in, in the results with Argentina doing so well. Is there anything you've noticed that, that might... You might not have a Canadian kind of background on, on what's happening here in rugby, but what what do you think the, the difference is?
1: I think the, the difference is is you you have to think about who is the biggest neighbour of Canada, which is the United States. <laughs> yeah. And Obviously, there is there's American football in Canada, so you're going to get some football or rugby-sized athletes that immediately go to the CFC, or they'll right. be getting taken yeah. into the US college system or the US um, pro leagues. Yeah. Whereas in Argentina, you're competing with soccer. Yeah. So you know, and if you are 120 kilos and six foot five, you're not <laughs> you going to be playing play soccer, soccer in the park yeah. with your mates. You know, what yeah, I mean? it's
2: a really good point. Yeah.
1: So I think in terms of that competition, yes, it is competition, um, but maybe for but scrum halves. Yeah, I mean, but we have a few guys in our system that were football players. Um, Manuel Montero is a good example. I mean, he's six foot four and he's one hundred and five kilos, and he actually started out as a uh, as a footballer in a, a pro club in the youth system, and somehow, end, uh, well, obviously, he ended up in rugby because he's a friggin' beast. But I, I think there is competition, but it's a little bit different. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I was at Boston College in in May, and there was a kid there who was Canadian, and he was you know built like a fridge in three hundred pounds. And I just thought, you know, he's playing American football. If he was in another country, he'd be playing rugby.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, that's a, yeah, that's a good point. So look, let's talk a little bit about programming that you like with that you've done with the Pumas um, for for this World Cup. You, you mentioned like you have this five five month window. Um, you know what 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 was your mindset going into that? Considering you had the Rugby Championship included there, and then. In your pools, you've got a team like the All Blacks, and then the next game was a team like Georgia, two very different sides. Like, How, how did that, that influence your program, and what was your kind of philosophy with that challenge?
1: Well, it, it, it's been a really – intellectually, it's been kind of like the most challenging uh, year I've had as a coach because so. – Obviously, when you're, in, when you're in university, they teach you about periodization and you learn, arts. Oh, it's four weeks of anatomical adaptation, four weeks of strength, four weeks of power, yeah, yeah four weeks of whatever. Yeah. And you go, oh, brilliant, I've got 16 weeks to prepare the guys. And then, obviously, you arrive to the reality. And the reality is that, that we were met with was that uh, we would have some coaches who have just played – sorry, some players who have just played um, a series of internationals against the United States – they're younger. They've played less rugby. Um, they're a lot more physically prepared than the Euro- European players, believe it or not. Yeah. And then we've got the European guys who are older. They've had a long season. Um, they've just come off their holidays. They've done nothing. And then we were told to get them ready in three weeks to play the All Blacks. Oh, and by the way, you've got to play the World Cup in September. So that's a, that's a really <laughs> yeah. difficult thing to program for because obviously one of the harsh facts about training is that training actually makes you worse at your sport. But when you train, you create fatigue. And fatigue does not make you play your sport well. And you, you really have to try and um, balance the two when you're trying to do both at the same time. So you're trying to deliver enough stimulus and fatigue to the athlete that they will improve for when you want them to improve down the line. But you have to be aware that the more you do that, the more their performance is going to suffer uh, when you're playing games at the same time. And you know, it's not just in, uh, in terms of your performance may suffer a bit, Performance and injury prevention are two sides of the same coin. If you're exposing them to a lot of fatigue, which makes them suck at their sport, you're going to hurt them as well if you're not careful. Yeah. So what we had to do was try and uh, identify what we thought was the the bare minimum of load or intensity or frequency that is going to allow our athletes to continue to develop without having too great of a cost in terms of their on-field performance. Yep. And then what we also tried to do was identify windows within the preparation where we could push harder and try and get more of a developmental load in the players um, when the schedule permitted. So the, the model that we adopted, um, you know, I can go into a bit more detail about it, but we have like a four-stage model um, which basically works backwards as this, so like the final block that we go into, which is our competition, is um, how do you take all of the physiological adaptations that you've developed in previous blocks and express them in the most efficient, effective manner on the field of play. So that would be an example of like that old pro who physically is falling to pieces, but he keeps up with everyone because he knows how to get every last drop out of what he has.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So that's our block four. The yep. block that comes before that is trying to develop all of those abilities that underpin, underpin a player's ability to perform in their position. So if you're a a prop, it's going to be stuff like limit and isometric strength in in pushing patterns like a scrum. If you're a winger, it's probably going to be like high high speed strength, reactive strength in kind of sprinting actions and and. Uh, a running vertical jump to receive the high ball. That's things that we focus on. Yeah. That's block three. Now, we know that underneath those position-specific abilities, we're going to have just general... Um, physical qualities that underpin those and that is maximal speed maximal strength and maximal power we know that generally speaking if you can increase those qualities in any rugby athlete they're going to perform better on the field of play Um, they're not going to be the best athlete because obviously they need to be position specific and know how to use it but improving those qualities gives us a great foundation to develop even more on and then the last block which is or the the first block um, working backwards is our preparation block training maximal speed strength and power is really stressful to the body and you're going to get injured if you don't earn the right first. So yeah. what we try and do in the block one is prepare the body, uh, develop work capacity, and make sure that when we do pu- you know, push hard, the, the wheels don't fall off. So we tried to adopt that four-phase model throughout the, um, throughout the preparation. So before the rugby championship was phase one. Okay. During the first block of the rugby championship was phase two. Then we gave them a week off uh, of like reduced phase two. Then we moved into Phase 3 when we played South Africa those two times. Yep. We went back to Phase 2 when they had two weeks uh, at home. And then as we moved into uh, our week against Leicester and our week against Portugal, we are in our Phase 3. And obviously as we arrived in the World Cup with uh, New Zealand uh, uh, last week and this week, we are in our Phase 4. So at the moment, the load is extremely low. Uh, there's not a lot of stress because for us, the, the capacity for the guys to get, get, to get better is, is very, very small indeed. And the capacity to get a lot worse and to get hurt is huge. For sure. So for us, it's just not worth trying to push now and improve the guys because it's not gonna happen and it's probably just gonna bite us in the arse. So we have to stick to the plan and, and have confidence in in our guys turning up and being fresh and being ready. Now, kinda answering the second part of your question, you know, no, we don't treat all of our opponents the same. Obviously, we respect them all the same. We know that it's gonna be a hard game. Um, but we are definitely going to approach things a little bit differently the week of Namibia. Mm. Uh, that's because we feel we're confident that we're going to be able to come away with a win, even if we push the guys a little bit harder.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and the reason that we've decided to do that is because if you train with such a low load like we do during our phase four, um, eventually you're going to need a little bit more of a higher intensity stimulus to stimulate the retention or a little bit of development of the physical qualities that you've lost by training so light. Mm. So what we're going to do is is push them a little bit harder, but not you know super super hard, uh, and hope that that re-simulates the development or retention of the abilities that we may have lost over those three weeks. And then we're going to hope that that carries us forward through the quarterfinal, semi final, and final if those happen.
2: Yeah, it's it's fascinating stuff. Like it's like it's obviously you haven't like. You don't just Google this stuff and find it out. It's like, such a <laughs> unique situation that the Pumas are in. Well, all, all the rugby championship teams um, were in this same position. Like, what? Um, well, I suppose two questions. like, What were some of the key kind of resources you called on? And, and two, like, how how are you going to, obviously results will tell you whether you're successful or not, but uh, are you tracking, how do you track it to, to follow up and look back at it in a month's time and go, yeah, that worked or this part didn't or... Or something along those
1: lines. Um, well, we we try and adopt um, kind of a, a readiness-based approach to training. Yeah. So I I don't believe that uh, the perfect program exists, and I don't believe that if you write a really good program, you can just um, you implement it as it's written every single day and expect it to get optimum results. Yeah. And that's because the the body's ability to tolerate physical stress is is finite. Uh, and psychological and non-exercise stresses tap into those physical resources exactly the same. Mm. So that means that obviously, uh, non-exercise and, and psychological and social forms of stress are always fluctuating up and down uh, on a day-to-day basis. So that means that the athlete's uh, capacity to tolerate physical training is going up and down as well. Because obviously, when non-exercise stress goes down, you're able to expose the athlete to more physical stress. Yes. Yeah. So for that reason, we're always trying to measure. Uh, the stress response state of the athlete to try and deliver the right training stimulus at the right time in the right amount. Um, so this is an, uh, an a Wave approach. You, you mentioned a megawave in your email to me. Like yeah, I'm a yeah. big fan, big believer in a megawave. Uh, it's just too expensive for us. Yeah. Uh, and probably um, maybe it would work in a team setting, but obviously with the language barrier as well, it's 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 not. Tool for us at the moment. Right. Uh, the Omega Wave system is based off the idea that you have seven physiological systems and they're yeah. always fluctuating. So those are um, CNS, autonomic, endocrine, neuromuscular, sensory motor, cardiopulmonary, and it's going to slip away from me. There's one more, detoxification maybe. Okay. Anyway, those seven systems is what Omega Wave tries to, to measure. Um, we don't have the resources to measure all seven, so what we do is try and measure the three that we feel are most important. Uh, which are the central nervous system, the autonomic nervous system, and the neuromuscular system. Um, We try and measure the CNS because uh, the CNS um, is the central governor of the stress response. The stress response happens when the CNS perceives a threat to its homeostasis. So if the CNS is stressed, there's a good chance that the body is stressed, and if it's not, the body's not. So we try and measure that through a subjective questionnaire and just get an idea of how the guys are feeling and how stressed they feel they are. Okay. Um, in terms of the autonomic nervous system, the ANS is like the body's real quick, rapid response to stress. So mm. it's the ANS that's responsible for mobilising, um, increase in heart rate, increased uh, release of adrenaline, increase in breathing rate, all of that stuff that gives you that rapid release of energy yeah. to fight a stressor. Yeah, the fight or flight. Exactly. So yeah. that the ANS is the mediator of that fight or flight response. Yeah. Now that means if you can manage the ANS in the short term. In theory, you should be able to manage things like the endocrine and sensory motor systems which are slower to respond in the long term. Because right. obviously, if you manage the short term, it, if you manage the pennies, the pounds look after themselves. Okay. And then obviously, we try and measure the neuromuscular system because it's a huge part of what we do. We're a, a, a force power speed sport and um, we don't want guys going out there if, if they can't produce those things. And obviously, it's a, a really easy thing to measure. So we try and measure with a subjective questionnaire. Um, the, the ANS stuff is difficult with what we're doing, but we're trying to get it from like heart rate recovery and HRV. Okay. And then, in terms of the neuromuscular, we do a standing broad jump assessment. Okay. It's probably not as sensitive as reactive strength index, but we don't have the ability to buy uh, 15 jump mats for all of our teams. Uh, plus, jump mats aren't very portable, you can't put yeah. them on the side of the pitch. So, we just buy tape measures for everyone and um, remain poor. So, <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh, <laughs> and uh,
1: what we do is we try and use rolling averages of those numbers to have an idea of where our players are at because it's not just that we want uh, raw values um, because you know, if, if I give, a, for example, a 10 out of 15 on the questionnaire every single day um, and you give a 15 out of 15 on the questionnaire every single day, a 12.5 is going to have a lot different meaning for me than it will for you. Yeah. So what we try and do is, is look at what is each player's score in terms of themselves for the previous seven days, 21 days and so on.
2: Okay, yeah. I, I like that it's... Uh you know, it's pretty grassroots, you know, I think it'll apply and be able to, people will be able to adapt to that, like, because I don't, I don't think there's many rugby clubs out there in the amateur world or semi-pro world that's got a mega wave wave or or jump mats, so
1: yeah, to, to hear
2: that a national team's doing it and is able to monitor their athletes, I think, like, using these methods, I think that's great.
1: Well, I mean, one of the reasons that we're trying to do that as well is because, obviously, we're dealing with regional performance centres that don't have the budget that the national team has. And, you know, the budget for the national team is pretty modest um, in in terms of international standards. Uh, I think we punch above our weight, you know, (laughs) in terms of financially. Um, And using that, because one of the goals that we had for development of the system is that if you're a player in the Argentinian system... Uh, sevens women's 18s 19s 20s and senior it shouldn't matter wherever you are in the country or which coach you're in front of or which performance center you're in you're mm. going to receive exactly the same uh system of, of training so there's a consistency that all players can benefit from
2: yeah great and so, theory. so <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> um so so then what happens like someone someone brings back a survey and it's it's a low score or their 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 broad jumps are a low score to their average or something like that Did you What's the process then? Is there, is there a chat with you and, and the athlete or the coaches and the athlete? and
1: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, we're we're not following um, readiness scores blindly. Um, a, a phrase that I've stolen from a guy named Darcy Norman, who who works for the same company or, or did work for the same company, he was head of um, strength and conditioning for Germany soccer when they won the World Cup. Okay. And he said to me that, you know, readiness stuff, it needs to be a, a verb and not a noun. And by that, he means... You don't just get those scores and say, right, you're not training, you're not doing this, you're not doing this. Mm. The, the readiness is there to act as a red flag to prompt a conversation between the coach and the athlete and the sport coach as well so that you can all come up with an idea uh, that's going to allow that athlete to get exactly what they need at that time in the right amount and, and everyone's going to get out of it what they want because no sport coach wants to be told, you can't train this player today. Yeah. They'd much rather be told, you need to be a little bit uh, cautious of this player um, if you can modify the session, he's fine to play. So, yeah. for example, we had a player the other day. He's played two lots of eighty minutes, and we looked at his broad jump, and it was a little bit low. So we said to the coach, "We think he's a little bit tired. Can you reduce the volume?" And we, we cut his volume in by a third.
2: Yeah, and I'm, I'm and I'm sure it's uh, you know player to player too. Some players can tolerate like they can just kind of grind it out, but others others it might be, especially if they're a key positional player, you might be a little bit. More cautious with them too, no? know. Absolutely,
1: and I think that's that's where you kind of get that kind of coach's eye thing of yeah. an experience of working with your players. You you know who you need to be more careful with. You know, guys, you can push a little bit harder with, and um, it, unfortunately, it's really difficult to learn that out of a book. You just have to do it day in and day out.
2: Yeah. Okay. Great. And so, just to backtrack a bit, did I did I hear you say like that the European based players, the Argentinian European based players, actually were less prepared than your your home based players? Correct. Yeah, like, um, really?
1: there's there's maybe a few reasons for that. Maybe it's their their older players. Okay. And um, maybe it is they do too much playing and not enough preparing. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's the quality of the training. I don't yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I mean, to give you an example, we have, um, we have an Argentinian-based player. He's never played professional rugby. He's 110 kilos and his broad jumps only three meters twenty. Wow. Our next closest broad jumper is um a, a guy that's never played professional rugby, 105 kilos, three meters five. Wow. You know, there there's some explosive guys <laughs> in that team that don't play in Europe. So yeah. it, it's actually been a transition in the last few years that those players uh, who train most of the year within our system are starting to perform better than the European-based play- players. And obviously, we've taken that as a bit of a compliment. Um, so yeah, we're, we're going to keep doing it.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's great. All right. So so I suppose um, next topic of conversation has probably been a big one for all the S and C coaches and coaches in general at the World Cup, but just a the sheer amount of injuries so far this World Cup. What, what? Um, like, I'm sure that you know parts of the game you, you get a concussion. It's a contact-based injury. It's very hard to avoid sometimes. But there's been some other injuries that, that maybe they can be avoided or
1: maybe they can't. What, what's your What's your take on that? Um, I think you're right about distinguishing between contact and non-contact injuries. Mm. Um, a, a contact injury. How do you avoid contact injuries? Well, you, you play less minutes of rugby. Like if you look at the stats, the more minutes of training and um, competition you do, the more contact injuries there are. Yeah. And contact is an integral part of our game, so you you really can't avoid them to an extent. I mean, you, you can try and avoid them by modifying the contact of certain practices, but you're going to pay a, a price in terms of doing that in having players that are unprepared for the realities of yeah, the game.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. In terms of the non-contact injury, um, speaking purely in theoretical terms, without being rude to any of the other coaches out there, any non-contact injury is 100% preventable. Really? And I include myself in that. We've had a couple of, uh, we had one non-contact injury so far, which is Mm. holding a player out for 10 days. We've had another near miss. And I take those as personal insults uh, to myself in in my inability to manage the training process. Mm. And here's why I think they're preventable. And that's because any non-contact injury occurs because of an imbalance between the, the physical demands of the environment on the athlete and the capacity of the athlete to tolerate those demands. Mm, yeah. And that can be acute or it can be chronic. Whatever it is, um, it's from an inability to manage the environment of the athlete. Yeah. And, and by that, so in within training, is it easy to manage the environment of the athlete? Absolutely it is. Mm. You, everything in the training environment is completely controllable. Within the context of matches, you're trying to raise preparation as high as you can of the athlete relative to the demands of the game Um, so you should not be putting athletes out on the field who are underprepared to to face the demands of international rugby so if if a non-contact injury happens it has happened because of errors within the training process and if you get more you're either extremely lucky or you're making more errors yeah with respect (laughs) yeah
2: no absolutely and uh, I, I find that really interesting it's um you know, a lot of a lot of people say oh, it's just rugby. It's injuries happening in rugby, but the absolutely not. It's, it is not the, rugby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, to give you an
1: idea, like I know it's a different level. The demands on the athlete are different. But mm-hmm. like when I was at London Wasps and we had a lot more control over the environment of the athlete, we went through nine months where our worst injury was a hamstring strain. Wow. wow! And when I was at Rotherham Titans, the injuries went down seventy percent because we actually started paying attention to how the guys felt and started reducing their load a little bit. Mm-hmm. So. It, it, there, is, I, there are occasions when I can understand why they happen but in, for, an example for you is um, you know, you've got a rugby coach who says you have a massive opponent coming up in a few weeks and I don't care whether the guys are tired they need to go out and they need to train and be ready to face this opponent and you know what, that sport coach has probably got a point because you cannot send players out onto the pitch who are not tactically and technically prepared mm. for the game but you need to understand that there's going to be a physical cost that you're going to pay in that. Yeah. yeah
2: exactly. So
1: I can understand why they happen, but you know, in theory they should not happen. And I think you know, in my ivory tower of performance, <laughs> the, the coaching staff as a whole should be united enough and everyone should be good enough at, at their job that you can make compromises to prepare athletes optimally for the sport and not have non-contact injuries.
2: Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, it that's, still happens though. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's some really good advice, and to to hear the stats of programs you work with, how how much they can come down just by just by asking guys, how do you feel? Like I think that's that's pretty significant. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I, you know, it's not it's not it doesn't have to be hugely scientific, but if you just speak to your guys every morning, like. You, you can tell, like, when they come in and they're good, you can push them hard, and when they come in and they're not, you can't. Yeah. And it's, it's funny, like, I've got a friend who works with Division One basketball in the States, and he said, um, do you know what the most important thing he's found for his athletes for recovery status? Is is whether or not they get laid the night before. He said they, they can be dehydrated, they can sleep like shit. He said if they've got laid the night before, they'll come in and train like Tarzan. And, you know, I've, I've, um, I've kind of done my, my readiness assessments with guys in the morning. They'll come in, I'll say, how you doing? oh uh, you know not good they'll do, they'll do the test and I'll say is everything alright and then obviously it comes out they've had a round mm-hmm. with their missus they've split up with their girlfriend and you can you can just tell so it's, it's really interesting
2: yeah oh, it's fascinating alright um, one of the other massive things that people would have been talking about know about, was uh, Japan's win over South Africa um, I, I just watched that game earlier today for the second time and it, it's just I still can't believe that it happened but yeah, <laughs> it's just incredible obviously, obviously there's a Huge amount of spirit in that team, and they're they're very skillful as well. But like, like how much of that win can you put down to their physical prep? prep?
1: It's really tough because, obviously, you know, just speaking from a sports science perspective, there are four areas which are going to underpin performance. Mm -hmm. One is tactical, one is technical, one is physical, and the other psychological. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think it's like if you imagine each area as like out of ten points, and you can say, you know, to be world champions, you need to be I don't know, 35 out of 40 points. You need to be near perfect in every area. Um, And the lower down you go in the levels of rugby, the more possible it is to be a 10 in one area and be crap in the other areas and still win. Yeah.
2: yeah.
1: I think, you know, the biggest difference for them is the fact that someone like Eddie Jones has come in because he's going to influence from what I've seen, the culture, which is the psychological Absolutely. aspect. And he's yeah. gonna influence the tactical and technical areas, which obviously they've done. Mm. And and he's brought in Steve Borthwick as well, I think. And, yeah. Line yeah. out coaching, yeah. Yeah, and to be honest, the the most important person within the coaching setup for me is is the head coach because he's gonna be able to impact those three areas. And the better you are at those other three areas, the the less you need to rely on the physical stuff. Now, have they progressed physically? Yeah, I think they have, but uh, I still think if you were to look at them they, they wouldn't be you know up there with the best in the world physically um, I, I, I actually my guess is that they've made more progress in the other areas than they have physically yeah uh, the, the flip side of that would be if you look at a team like uh, Canada or the USA, mm-hmm. they have really really good strength and conditioning programs and yeah. they have great facilities and stuff like that but then that might be the flip side that they're really really strong in that area but perhaps they lack a little bit in, in the other stuff and right. uh, I would say the same of a team like Georgia.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh that's 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 a really good point. Cool. Okay. Um what about what about strength and condition coaches at the World Cup? Is there is there like a spirit of collaboration there? Do you guys like get into dark corners and talk about your latest spreadsheet you've created on Excel and, and all these kind of things? Or 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 does it depend? Like some some guys are open, some or some guys and girls are open, some girls guys and girls aren't. What's uh No,
1: I mean I mean everyone's uh fairly open. Um, just speaking personally for myself, you know, I'm I'm pretty pretty open about what I do, and that's mm. because um, my opinion is that there's there's no new information out there. There are no secrets. Yeah. Um, it's really just who is able to take the information that's out there and apply it in the most sensible fashion and the most efficient manner. And just because you've got the information that I have doesn't mean you're going to be able to use it the same way. It, mm. it takes years and years and years to put it together. And um, and just also it's just. I think it's it's good to help people. I've I've taken a lot of stuff from other people, and if I can do the same for them, that's great. And I think a lot of other coaches share that. Um, I was lucky enough to meet um, Calvin Morris, who was with the RFU now with Great Britain Cycling, and he's been helping out Georgia. So I had a good chat with him after the game recently. And um, I didn't get a chance to speak to Nick Gill from the All Blacks, which is a bit of a disappointment after the game. But yeah. um, you know, it, it's fairly open. I have a friend who's a strength coach with with England. I'm going to try and catch up with him at some point, either during or after the World Cup. Um, it's, it's a pretty good community,
2: to be honest. Yeah, that's great. And like it's kind of going back to the, the genesis of this podcast, I kind of decided to do it because of all the strength and conditioning podcasts that are out there. I've been like listening to a bunch of them and it does seem to be a very open and sharing community, um, which I think from from a rugby coaching point of view, often some of that stuff is you can get it, but you have to pay for it kind of thing. Um, and that's hopefully hopefully what I can try and change a little bit with this show.
1: I like it. Such a giver. <laughs> yeah,
2: pat on my back. <laughs> yeah, well done, mate. Yeah. What? Um. Anyhow, enough of that. What, what? Like during a game, what's your role during the game? You're out there running water, or are you are you monitoring guys, or? Dude,
1: I do so little on game day. Like <laughs> my my role, obviously coming in as an outsider. Like I was brought in as a consultant, so it, it's a fairly interesting dynamic that I have because. Mm-hmm. I do have a lot of influence on what happens in terms of strength and conditioning but ultimately they, they can still tell me no because they're paying for this advice they don't have to take it so yeah. it's a slightly different dynamic and also the fact that they brought me in as a consultant so I see my job as to be to to retain what they do really well and then to try and improve what I think needs uh, addressing and the stuff that they do really, really well is is match days. They do on field warm-ups really, really well. So I don't tinker with it. We you know, the other guy that we have, he's really good at that. He runs match day. Yep. And then I just sit there in the background and try and assist as much as I can.
2: Okay.
1: Which against New Zealand meant taking the concussed player and helping him undress and telling him where he was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, to be honest, I don't do a lot. I I like to think that the stuff that I do well gets done before the match yeah, and when, by the time the match happens my job's done
2: yeah absolutely so, so on that then like a session that you run like if you're in the weight room if someone's watching a session that you run what, what are they gonna what are they gonna see and hear from from a session that you're, you're in charge of
1: um, well you know I've already mentioned that we have that four phase system yeah. um, we kind of stole uh, our model of, of preparation from from Charlie Francis and that is that we we train all elements th- of the program throughout the year. But obviously, we're going to emphasise different elements at different times throughout the year, based on where we are and what we're trying to do physically. Mm. Um, so our programs are always going to have um, a speed, uh, and that can be linear or multi-directional component. Yep. We're always going to do medicine ball throws, jumps, and plyometrics. We're always going to do power. We'll always do strength. We'll always do some kind of accessory or bodybuilding movements, and we're always going to do energy system work. Right. And um, so you'll see that in every. High day session that we do. Obviously, okay. we operate in a high-low model. So, yep. um, on a low day, we're doing lower intensity um, energy system work. We're doing more accessories type stuff. Um, we're really not going to do power and speed stuff. We may do a tiny bit of strength on um, on the low days, but we we really just try and keep it to the high days. Like mm. we we do not do medium days of training. To be honest, you know, yes. uh, someone told told me once: medium works in clothing, it doesn't work in training. You're either <laughs> stressing to adapt or you're recovering from from stress. Yeah. So that's what we try and do um, and, and obviously where we are in the year will dictate how we execute that particular piece. So to give you an example, if we're doing speed in our phase one, we're not going to go up to 100% of top speed. No. We are going gonna to work throughout the block to build up to 100% of top speed. We're going to focus a lot on technique and drills and then um, using stuff like tempo and hills and maybe sleds to slow the movement down yep. and to give the athletes opportunity to get used to the forces that they're gonna be exposed to in phase two, mm-hmm. which is where they are sprinting at 100% um, and they're trying to get in the highest amount of quality work possible that's gonna raise those maximal outputs. Then obviously as we get into phase three, we're gonna try and teach them how to, to take those speed qualities that they've developed and express them within the context of the game and their position. Yep. And then as we come into phase four, we just concentrate on the pitch and and hope they retain what we've already developed.
2: Yeah, yeah, okay, great. Um, if and I'm sure this has happened to you in Argentina. If you if you got a scarcity of equipment uh, in a weight room, um, what are what are some of the must haves that, that you need to have to keep to, to do all you're doing?
1: I think you need. Well, I mean, I'll give you some insight. Like last year, our training gym for the rugby championship was a marquee. Like we literally set up a marquee because the gym that we were training at was too small. It had like two right. racks. So we had a big like wedding style marquee in a field <laughs> with an uneven wooden floor. Oh great. And we had four squat racks.
2: Yeah.
1: Four benches. Yeah. We had a bar in each one. We had two trap bars. We had some stackable dumbbells and then we had um, some TRXs and that was it.
2: Okay. And now so you- I
1: reckon I reckon you could get away with if you could get a full power rack with a chin up attachment and a bench or an incline bench, yeah, and some weight plates and a bar and maybe some bands, you'd be good. Yeah, right. Because I think I think a lot of a lot of
2: club rugby's like that. They've got a shed attached to their clubhouse, and there's not much room in there to get stuff in there. So they're not going to have room for five Olympic lifting platforms or anything like that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's there is definitely a limit to. What you can do as you obviously come down in terms of available equipment. Yep. Um, but the the amount of equipment at which it's impossible to be a good coach is extremely low. You know, yeah, it's, it's a lot yep. lower than people think. You don't yeah, need right. a lot of equipment to, to develop good athletes. That's
2: great. That's good to know. All right. Well, um, we always finish off the show with our uh, final four questions. Um, you, you mentioned your rugby playing as a kid. Who who was your favourite rugby player when you were growing up?
1: Oh, I really like Neil Back because he, yep. uh, he was yep. the same position as me and he was also small. Um, yeah. <laughs> he just had a lot better of a career than me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I was a big fan of his too. and I think I think, um, I think it, you look at the current England side and I, could, I think they need a Neil Back. Um, there's not much pressure on the ball at the breakdown. Um, well, so they
1: always say down that down. Uh, Chris Robshaw is a six and a half. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell, I tell you who I think they miss most. Um, maybe it's changed a little bit with Josephs now, but for the longest time, I think they've missed a player like Will Greenwood. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Because you know they've never been short of of twelves to bash it up. Mm. But it was that you know Will Greenwood being on the outside of Mike Tindall, they never seemed to replace him for me, which uh, is a shame.
2: Yeah, and that's a it's a tough position to find a world class player there. Um, I think probably the best one going around now would be um, would be uh, Conrad Smith uh, in the current World Cup. Um, he's because, you know, you've had Tim Horan's and the, and the like. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry, and, Brian, Tim the Brian O'Driscoll's and the like, but yeah. Yeah,
1: to put to put him on the outside on Ma Nonu, like Ma Nonu. You know, that I trained his help. brother, actually, at Brotherham. Yeah. You know, I've, I've told his brother, like, I honestly think his brother is probably one of the best 12s ever. You know, right. if not the best, because it's just one of those players, when we play him with Argentina, he can go through you, he can go around you, he can put somebody else in space, and your, your heart just sinks whenever he gets the ball. Wow,
2: it's amazing. Cool. Yeah. What, about, what, about, what about current players now going around? Who, who do you like watching?
1: Well, it's funny, you know, I, I really like to watch um, players play. Obviously, that's, that's kind of like when it comes to fruition and you get to, you know, people see what you do and you, the players get to enjoy themselves and, and realize all the hard work. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I really like to do is kind of watch the guys train because that gives you an insight and see how does that player become what they are. And I have to say the opportunity to work with Sonny Bill Williams at the Roosters was, you know, extremely interesting because being able to watch him every single day, you kind of understand physically why is he what he is and technically why is he what he is. And, you know, he does a ton of practice. For someone who was like World Player of the Year uh, at Rugby League, he was still putting in 15 minutes of passing every single day, every single session, which is really interesting. Um, Physically, he's, he's not that strong. Yeah. Um, he's not that fast. The difference yeah. is, is, if you give him a moderate load, he doesn't change his speed. Yeah. So he yeah. is going to run the same speed over 10 meters whether you're hanging off him or you're not. <laughs> wow. Or he is going to push through you whether you're trying to tackle him or you're not, yeah. which is really interesting. And, and that's that's um, stimulated a lot of my thinking or, or research that I'm trying to do. In rather than looking just at um, how, how strong is an athlete, looking at how powerful an athlete is and what the shape of their force velocity curve is like. Um, rather than just how much force can they produce? And then you know another player in that in that vein is is Juan Martin Hernandez. Um, that guy does stuff with a ball uh, when he's tired in the middle of a game that I could not do if you gave me a hundred times to do it when I was fresh. And you, you you saw a few bits of that in the New Zealand game. And um, he's an extremely humble guy, um, just a, a really really nice guy. He I don't think he realizes how good he is sometimes, and wow. it's it's been a real honour to work with him.
2: That's great. It would have been bittersweet then, um, seeing how much Sonny Bill Williams changed the game when he came on. You know, absolutely, I mean game.
1: that's you know that was probably the difference for us as well. Mm. Um, the the depth that they had in the bench, you know, I think they put three centurions on the bench the other day, New Zealand, <laughs> <laughs> which is it's unreal. We don't have yeah. one.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's it's quite the position they're in. Absolutely, and yeah, you know yeah. if they don't
1: win it, they've got problems.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what uh what about coaches and who who who's one of your favorite coaches that's
1: been around um I have only met him the once, but everyone speaks extremely highly of michael Checker yep
2: yep
1: okay. um you know from what i understand he's he's huge for the culture that he sets up with the teams. He's a real leader in terms of culture. I put mm. up a, a a video on my website recently talking about what's the difference between leadership and management and um leadership is obviously. You're not not the guy whipping the workers from behind. He's the one pulling from the front. And yeah. I, the ARU put up a, a photo of Michael Checker running hills with his guys in Manly for their final World Cup camp, yeah, and I saw think that, that, one that too, sums yeah. it up.
2: That was awesome. It was great. Yeah,
1: you know he doesn't have to do that, uh, but yeah. I think it makes his players respect him, and it uh, makes everyone feel like they're in the same boat. And stuff like cleaning up the rubbish after their game uh, at Soldier absolutely. Field in the States yeah, yeah. and That's
2: key. That's great. absolutely
1: uh, so. I, I really respect him as an outsider as a coach. Um, obviously Trent Robinson has been very successful uh, three minor premierships in a row at, um, at the Roosters very young as well and obviously you know, I'm working with Daniel Hercard at the moment and I'm, I'm really respecting his vision as well at the moment, uh, he is not afraid to, to make big decisions and he's not afraid to maybe take some risks in the short term for, for long term success and I, you know, I really respect that and I'm enjoying being a part of it right now
2: that's great, it yeah, must be a buzz
1: Okay, yeah, it's it, you know that everyone's pulling in the same direction and trying to yeah, build something for the future uh, It's a really good place to be. Pretty
2: special, yeah. What um okay, and then last question, who who are who are some coaches who are kind of grinding away in the in the uh the nether regions of rugby that you think uh deserve a shout out.
1: Uh, well, you know, I'm not sure how much longer he's going to be in for rugby because he's just uh, started a an internship with probably the best track and field coach in the country, but you've already had him on It's Tom Farrow.
2: Yeah, right. Yeah, no it um, was episode 6,
1: yeah. Tom is an amazing coach. He's um, been kind of hard dealt by in, in rugby, um, but he, he is a super, super coach. He's one of those guys that makes me feel like an idiot every time I see him, and in a good way. <laughs> yeah. um, him, Sam Portland, another guy that I work with at Wasp, is excellent. Um, I was trying to think, other guys within, within English rugby. Aidan Oakley's very good. He's uh, done some stuff in rugby league. Mladen um, Jovanovic, who um he's on his way to a new job at the moment but he's currently based at uh, Aspire in qatar you know he is just years and years ahead of most other strength and condition coaches and i you know I, you know people talk about like the misunderstood genius i think if people could just understand what he's trying to do he would be perceived as far more important than he is but he's he's an excellent excellent coach
2: oh that's cool all right great so just to, just to close out where, where's some where where can people get in contact with you where can they learn about uh, rugby strength coachcom and uh, and those kind of things
1: so if you just Google rugby strength coach um, my website should come up top um, yeah. I'm on uh, all the social media platforms I'm, I'm doing a few different things I have a, an online community that I do now which is um, it's basically for developing an established strength. Coaches who, who want to get better as practitioners. Yeah, Every month right. we have a, a speaker that presents a webinar from professional sport. We have a lot of discussion and interaction with other coaches there. That it seemed to go down really well, and I'm I'm going to uh, start building that more in the new year. Um, I'm doing some seminars in uh, Northern Ireland and England in November at Hartbury and uh, Belfast, and you can find details of that on the website. And um, you know, more than anything, I just like interacting with people, and you know trying to do my best to, to raise the standard of strength and conditioning coaching within rugby.
2: All right. Well, you're doing a great job and, um, you know, super stoked to have you on the show and thanks, thanks a bunch for giving up your time. Uh, I know you're right in the guts of uh, the Rugby World Cup but, um, you know, really appreciate you coming on the show, Keir.
1: Mate, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
2: Yeah, no worries. All right, cheers. Thanks
0: for listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review via iTunes and keep listening for the next episode. You can also follow us on Twitter at RugbyCoachSCNR or via the website at TheRugbyCoachesCorner.com Until next time, keep sharing ideas to make the game better.